the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Like most of the accounts of Jesus' miracles, today's gospel lesson of our Lord's raising the son of the widow of Nain works on multiple levels, layer upon layer of meaning that we can peel back like an onion or an ogre. On one level, Jesus' miracles recalls Elijah raising the son of a Sidonian widow, placing our Lord's ministry in continuity with the prophets of old. He did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. On another level, we note the contrast between Elijah, his effort and fervent prayers that God answered, and that of Jesus, who by dint of his divinity simply commanded the dead to rise. But as we dig through the layers like a parfait, we find undergirding our understanding the ultimate question, what exactly is life and death? A couple of blocks from my house, out on the corner of PCH and First Street, chained to a traffic signal, there is a frame of a beach cruiser, a bicycle body without tires, painted white and adorned with flowers, hovering above the pavement, suspended by the chains that secure it to the metal post. Evidently, someone lost their life in a traffic accident near there struck down and memorialized by those who mourn their loss. I think about that often as my wife and I push our now five-month-old in her stroller past the bike. Someone died, not far from where we sleep at night, and we don't know who it was or what happened. Which recalls the times I've seen an ambulance pulled up in front of our condominium over the course of the plenty-plus years I've lived there. Someone being loaded into the back on a stretcher, never to return. Today we live in a cramped world, surrounded by others. Where I live in downtown Huntington Beach, three-story houses are squeezed into spaces that before the building sprouted, you would have sworn were too small for even a side yard. Yet for all the closeness physically, relationally, most of us remain distant from our neighbors. You might know the neighbors on either side of you fairly well. Your neighbors the next door over less though, and so on perhaps knowing that one neighbor is that guy at the end of the block who waters his lawn at 5.30 in the morning. But that is a relatively recent phenomenon. It used to be your neighborhood and your community were synonymous. South of Nazareth lay a small farming village called Nain. Like most small villages, everyone knew everyone. Heck, the people of Nazareth and Nain probably knew each other as well, or at least heard all the juiciest gossip, gossip and goings on. The day before, Jesus had been in Capernaum and healed the centurion's servant. Now, as he and his disciples entered Nain, they came upon a funeral possession. We really don't do funerals like they did back in the old days. Now, we try to get over, it, over with it as painlessly as possible, with as little fuss and muss as we can. Our ideal is a grieving, grieving widow, gently wiping away a single tear. Even the recent activities surrounding the death of Queen Elizabeth II, for all their pomp and ceremony, are understood and appreciated for their dignity. Grief and pain is to be something experienced privately, isolated and unshared, so as not to be a burden to others. Not so in the ancient world. Back then, it was a time of giving full voice to the emotional turmoil surrounding death. And if you were worried that the voices wouldn't be full enough, you could hire professional mourners to wail in the right pitch and key. That is the scene which Jesus encountered that day at the gates of Nain, 
not a dignified procession of gentle weeping, a kid banging a drum in front like you see in old westerns, before lowering the casket on Boot Hill singing, Shall We Gather at the River. The procession out of the town of Nain would, I'm pretty sure, make us all feel awkward and, and embarrassed. And I'm not just talking as reserved Anglicans. Even a charismatic would be taken aback by the display of emotions. As much as we would prefer to face death in a dignified and stoic manner, the fact of the matter is that death itself is never dignified. It is always and in every case a tragedy. We can try and romanticize it, mythologize it, but at the end of the day, death itself is antithetical to the creator who is life itself. And when that creator offered himself up to death, he did so in order that we may have life abundant. Ultimately, all that matters to us as God's creatures hinges on our understanding of life and death. To the world, the understanding of what life and death runs towards a circular argument. Life at its most basic is merely the absence of death. Death, on the other hand, is just whatever it means to be not alive. To the world, life is about the biological process of growth. We grow, develop, and as time passes, our cells die out faster than we can regrow replacements. We age. Our physical and mental capacities diminish until we can no longer continue to live and succumb to death. In other words, to the world, one is alive when they are doing things. In our consumerist culture, that means that I means either producing or consuming resources. Is it any wonder then that children, the disabled, and the elderly are undervalued? A child is not the joyous wellspring of life, but a burden, an accessory to display the parents' achievements, or a second chance to rectify their own failures before they too begin to decay. Likewise, the elderly, who can no longer contribute in the way society has defined what it means to be alive. In Christ, Life and death take on new meaning. Like the widow's son, we are rescued from death and granted new life. But what in Jesus' miraculous raising of the dead was merely a precursor, a foretaste, in us becomes something altogether new, glorious, and far more miraculous. In Christ, we learn that death is of no effect. What truly matters is not life and death, but living and dying. Death is but the culmination of our rebellion, the running away from him into the arms of that living death, which is distance from God. Without a relationship with God in Christ, life as the world knows it is truly futile. It is a constant state of dying. Disconnection from God is the true death. Conversely, life is only really alive when we are living in Christ. Our physical bodies may falter and decay, but our souls can and should always be growing in our relationship with him. That is the newness of life that Jesus talks about, our souls ever growing more and more in him, even in what the world would call our dying. In the same way, sin separates us from God. Sin is the death rattle of the soul, the outward expression of the death that is separation and alienation from God. And like the death of the son of the widow of Nain affected the whole community, our death through sin affects not just ourselves, but the whole body of Christ. In the new life in the body of Christ, children are not merely pre-persons, as a world would have it, but full members of the one body. 
and in the elderly, we see not a precursor of our own inevitable fleshly demise, but persons who are on the same spiritual journey just farther along, a journey which culminates in our prayed-for union with God in Christ through the Spirit. As our fleshly bodies grow and then decline, our souls can always be moving forward, growing in our love of God and of others. The decline of our physical selves through Christ need not be a hindrance, but instead part of the means by which Christ teaches us to die to the world of sin and enter more fully into the newness of life. We are both body and soul. We grow our souls in the soils of the flesh so that the soul may overcome its temptations. The soul thus, thus enlivened awaits Jesus' second coming in which our souls become once again united to a more glorious body knit together in Christ. Finally, Christ's raising of the son of the widow of Nain illustrates to us his humanity. He touches the buyer, the wooden frame upon which the corpse was lain, becoming in the eyes of those around unclean. But he who is spotless can never be made unclean. Instead, by taking on the outward appearance of uncleanness, whether it be in the touching of a dead body, the leprous, or ultimately in the scandal of his death on the cross, he bears the weight of our uncleanness, suffering the effects that he might take us through that unbreakable barrier that separates us from God by incorporating humanity into himself and he into our humanity, not in some general sense for all mankind, but for each and every man, woman and child, you, me, us. In the world's eye, our neighbors are either potential rivals for resources or potential customers, not just in material goods and services, but as partners in transactions. In the world, relationships depend on reciprocity. I have needs that you can fulfill. I give that I may receive, and vice versa. But in our new life, in Christ, we are so filled with an overabundance of grace and joy that we can give of ourselves to other freely. Jesus had compassion on the widow, God grieves for the death of each and every person. But through his only begotten son, we have new life, real life. Life as God intended it to be. As St. Paul describes it in this morning's epistle, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.